this morning as we open up God's Word, as we continue to feed our souls, as we've already sung songs that feed us, as we now open His Word and we seek to find joy as we savor God's goodness, I, I want to ask you a question. When you hear the word hope, what comes to your mind? What image, what mental pictures do you get? Oftentimes when we use the word hope, we, we say things like, well, I hope something happens, and oftentimes it's really just wishful thinking. And so we'll say things like, well, I hope I have a good day, or we'll say, well, I hope that my team wins a big game. And so we use this word hope, and quite often, usually how we use that word, there's no assurance, there's, there's no guarantee that what we're hoping for is actually going to happen. There's no guarantees that your team's going to win that big game. Even for things that are more significant, like you say, well, I hope that I get that contract extension. But there's not a guarantee that you'll get that. When we think about the word hope, we want to look at God's word. What does God's word say about hope? Today we're going to meditate on this subject of hope. And may our affections for Jesus truly be stirred. And may our hearts be ignited for the mission of God as we find our hope in God. Last week we began this series in 1 Peter, a series that will continue today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This series is called Expatriate, Following Jesus in a Foreign Land. The Apostle Peter was inspired by God's Spirit to write this letter to various churches that were in modern-day Turkey. And he refers to these believers in Jesus as exiles. So an exile in, in this context in 1 Peter chapter 1 refers to strangers or, or foreigners. And so we saw this last week that as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. We're not citizens of the kingdoms of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And this world is not our home. And so we must not become too comfortable living here because we're here on a mission in the war zone to display the glory of God by making and developing disciples. And so we are expatriates of heaven. And the book of 1 Peter lets us know how to live as expatriates, as foreigners in this land. Now, for us, we're expatriates by living in Abu Dhabi, but we're ex expats in the ultimate sense because our home is in heaven. And so what does it look like to live in this foreign land, in this fallen, broken world for Jesus? Well, First Peter describes how. And so today, as we look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, this, this section is all about hope. So what are you facing today? Are you feeling overwhelmed this morning? Maybe you have a situation that you feel is hopeless. But I'm hearing the authority of God's word to tell you that there is hope. It doesn't matter how hopeless it seems no matter how helpless you might feel today, there is hope, and his name is Jesus. 
and you can't find rest in him because God offers a living hope. Let's read about that. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Let's begin by reading God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of God in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Amen. Indeed, this is such spiritual food for our hungry souls. Let's identify the primary truth that this, this passage is describing so we can then begin to understand it and apply it to our lives as we follow Jesus in this foreign land. The primary truth, so the main idea of this text is that as disciples of Jesus, we can joyfully praise God in life because we have hope. That as followers of Jesus, we can joyfully praise him. Why? Because we have hope. And so we're going to see the source of this hope. So what is, what is the source of this hope that we have? As we meditate in this text, let's look at this. Number one, the source of hope. We can joyfully praise God, number one, because of the hope of salvation. And so our hope is salvation. Verse 3 begins, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins saying, Blessed, blessed be. Now that word means to praise or to speak well of. And so when you bless someone, you're speaking well of them. You're praising them. If you speak poorly of someone, you're cursing them. So it's the opposite. And so here he's saying, blessed be the God. He's saying, praise be to God. Let's speak well of God. Why? What reason do we have to sing the praises of God? He says in the same verse 3, for his great mercy. That's why. We sing for mercy. We sing praises on a Friday morning, together, we sing when we're driving our cars. Hopefully we don't curse anyone. 
We can sing praises to God. You can sing in the shower. Now, I sing very terribly, so I don't usually sing unless it's in here where no one can hear just me. But we sing his praises. And it's not just when you're actually singing, how you live, everything inside of you, pouring out praise to God. He says, praise God for his mercy. He has been so gracious to us by saving us. And so this brings us joy. Because God does not treat us how we deserve. He treats us as children. He gives us his mercy. It says God's mercy says caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, do you realize that this verse right here is just shattering the popular view of Christianity? I mean, it's just tearing it to pieces. Because the popular thinking goes along these lines. Well, people are Christian because they come from a Christian nation or because they have a Christian tradition or a Christian background. Or you're a Christian because your parents are Christians. And it's like that for all religions. People that are born in the Middle East are Muslim. People that are born in India are Hindu. People in China are Buddhist. If you're born in a Western nation, you are a Christian. And so there's this very popular thinking that makes Christianity a system of belief, a religious structure that people can then choose to follow and say, well, I choose to be a Christian. I choose the religion, and so I'm going to to follow the teachings of this good man, Jesus, and I'll be a Christian. That's not in the Bible. It's not in here. At all. That is the wisdom of man, but it is not revealed by God. Verse 3 tells us what a Christian is. And it's not a religion. It's not choosing to follow a faith. It's nothing to do with that. Being a follower, a disciple of Jesus is someone who has been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is a believer in Jesus. Verse 3 says, a Christian is someone that has tasted of the mercy of God. They have tasted the gospel, and it tastes sweet to them. If you're here, and you're hearing about God's mercy, and how we deserve hell, but Jesus died in your place and offers you forgiveness when you hear about God's mercy towards you, If you taste it and it tastes bad to you, like, that tastes gross. I don't want to taste that. I don't want to taste that I'm a sinner who needs God's grace. If the gospel does not taste sweet to you, then you have not been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Because it tastes sweet to us. And we want more of it. And we're overwhelmed by it. And we sing it, and we don't get tired of it. We never get tired of singing for mercy because we recognize how much of it we need and how good God is. And so a follower of Jesus has been radically transformed. They have tasted mercy of God. They have his spirit living in them, just born again. They've been made new. This world is corrupted by sin. And we're no different. We are equally part of this world. We're equally corrupted by it. But that is why God the Father 
sent God the Son to come, become a human being, to live a perfect, sinless life, and to endure our wrath that we deserve and our guilt and shame on the cross. And so Jesus came to make things new, to restore this broken world to what it was like in the Garden of Eden when there was no sin and no corruption. And he is restoring the world and making all things new. How? How did he accomplish it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so with his resurrection, he is making things new. He's renewing and restoring. And he begins with you and me. Look around. What do you see? I see people. Yes, you do. Look deeper. Diverse people, yes, that's obvious. Look a little deeper. Look around. What you see is new creations. What you see is a foretaste of what Jesus came to accomplish, which is resurrecting the dead, pushing back the darkness, bringing in his kingdom. And those of us in this room that trust and love Jesus are members of his kingdom right now. And we have been resurrected now. We have the spirit right now. And so we are new creations. He is recreating humanity. And we are the recipients of that grace. And he did it with the resurrection where he conquered sin and death and Satan himself as a perfect sacrifice. And so forgiveness is available And so salvation, the very nature of being a Christian, is someone that has been radically changed by the Spirit of God who belongs to Jesus, who has been captivated by his glory. It's not some I'm disreligion. No way. Nothing to do with that. It's knowing Jesus, being born again. And this resurrection that makes us born again guarantees us something. What does verse 3 say that we have? Living hope. We have hope. That's what we have. We've been given this new spiritual life, born again, he says, based on the resurrection of Christ that leads to living hope. That's the guarantee. That is the assurance of verse 3. This is not some, oh, I hope against hope, which really what that means is I'm hoping for something that I know I'm not going to get. Ever experienced that? Where you you say you hope for something, but you know it's not going to happen. Much like my 10-year-old son. If he comes to me and says, Dad, I'm the only person at James Cambridge International School in grade 6, class D. I'm the only one of 28 students that doesn't have an iPad. Which he is, incidentally. I'm the only student who doesn't have his own mobile phone. I stand out and I'm weird. I mean, he's already blonde and and so he already stands out anyway, but he stands out further because he doesn't doesn't play some of the same games like Black Ops that are killing and bloody, so he doesn't play any of those games on, on the Xbox and he doesn't have his own personal devices with online access, which by the way, parents, what are you doing giving a 12-year-old boy online access in private. Are you crazy? 
What do you think they're going to look for? Nothing wholesome. Don't give them a phone. And if you do, block the internet. I'm serious. Get an app. Block it. Don't be foolish. I don't give my son a phone. He won't have one for years. He doesn't need it. He can hope against hope that dad's going to buy him a phone. He can keep on hoping all he wants. He's not getting a cell phone. Not going to get it. Because his hope is not based on fact. The fact is I buy electronics in my home, and I'm not buying him one. So he can have hope all he wants. Not going to happen. I can hope that this summer it won't ever climb above 35 degrees. <laughs> I can hope. I can hope, can't I? Sure, but that's dumb. It's foolish. It's not based on any kind of fact. And so that hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. And wishful thinking, we use this word hope, is undependable and has no power to bring anything to pass. And so when, when believers in Jesus, when we talk about hope, we are not talking about wishful thinking. We are not talking about, oh, I hope so. No. The believer in Jesus, you know what our hope is? I know so. That is our hope. So instead of this wishful thinking that something will or might happen, a believer's hope is grounded, it's solid, it's reliable. Why? Because it's based on the Word of God. And we know from God's Word that He cannot lie. He can't lie. It goes against His nature. He is truth. And so if it's in here... It's a promise from God. You can cast your life and eternity on it because you're going to get it. Guaranteed. Our hope is grounded in the fact of the resurrection. Our hope is rooted in the objective, historical, verifiable fact that a man named Jesus is God, died, rose again, is alive today on the throne, and he's alive with his spirit in us, and this is objective. It is not this shifting, oh, I, I hope. No, this is fact. We can cast our lives upon it. And so hope is when you desire something, but with assurance that it's actually going to happen. And so hope is waiting for something, but with confidence. Hope is looking forward because you've already looked back. And when you look back, you see the resurrection. So you can now look forward with hope and assurance. We don't have a dead hope. What is it called in verse 3? Living hope. Hope is, what is our faith? Our hope is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jesus. This is our hope, grounded in the resurrection, and it's reliable. And verse 4 builds on this. So verse 3 is describing that we have hope because of the resurrection. Verse 4 builds on it. And he says, he explains that this living hope is 
it says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he's building his argument. He's explaining. He's, he's revealing more. So he says, there's this living hope based on the resurrection, and then he calls it an inheritance. So he's saying this living hope is an inheritance. So it's far greater than the Old Testament promises of inheritance because God promised Israel. We looked at Joshua from September through January. So if you were here, you might remember when we looked at that. And God promised an inheritance to his people in the land of Canaan. But that was only pointing to something far greater, the ultimate, the final promised land, the final inheritance. And Joshua was pointing to Jesus who is our victorious captain, who defeats the enemy and gives us an inheritance, a promised land. But it's Jesus who gives us the final and ultimate promised land. Heaven, he says, kept in heaven. That's our final destination. That's our home. We're just expatriates right now living in this world. And so this hope is an inheritance, and that, that's what awaits us after we die will be resurrected. How do I know? Because Jesus died and was resurrected. Because you already have experienced it spiritually. And now you're going to experience it physically. You will. It's verifiable. It's subjective. It's fact. You can put your hope in it. And we will be with Jesus forever. And so this living hope from verse 3 is described as an inheritance in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he's building further, revealing more what is his living hope and he calls it salvation. So this living hope is an inheritance that is a salvation. And so there's this beautiful picture, verse 5, he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this salvation is living hope. It's we're being rescued from God's judgment. And God did it himself with having his son, God himself, endure our judgment inner condemnation. And this shows, it says, the power of God to save sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And salvation, it says in verse 5, is received by what? Through faith. Not through earning it, not through going to church, not by trying to be a good person, not by being religious. No, salvation, eternal salvation, it says, received through faith. But hear me very carefully. Your faith does not save you. Your faith does not save you. It doesn't. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is what saves sinners. So Christ's sacrifice is what saves you. Your faith is the evidence that you believe that. So your faith shows your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so if you don't have faith in Christ, what that means is that you're rejecting that sacrifice. You don't believe it. You don't want it. You think you don't need it. Okay, God will leave you to your own devices, and you'll see what happens after you die. And yet, those of us that believe that this is true, that Christ did die, and a sacrifice alone can save us, when we're, we respond by trusting in that, in Jesus and his work on the cross, and so that is why we're saved by faith, the work of Jesus that we're trusting in. But the whole point of hoping is that we don't have it yet, right? 
Because if you have it, you don't have to hope for it. You got it. And so first of all, we have this living hope. It means that we don't have it yet, which is why he says salvation, he says, to be revealed in the last time. And so it's not finished yet. When Christ returns, our salvation will be, he says, revealed, will be completed. We'll be finally in heaven forever. So we're not home yet. We're not. We continue following Jesus, trusting in him in this foreign land. But we do so with hope. Here's the key here. So as disciples of Jesus, we can joyfully praise God in our life because we have hope. We have the hope of salvation. Why? Why does that give us hope? Because your salvation proves that God is sovereign and that he is good. Salvation proves that he is all-sovereign, all-powerful, in control, and yet he loves you. Despite ourselves, he loves us. The all-powerful God who loves is glorious. Salvation proves it. Hopelessness is a curse. Being hopeless, it's a curse of trusting in man or anything else for that matter, rather than trusting in God's perfect wisdom and timing. So brother or sister, are you in a season of waiting today. Don't know what you're waiting for, but is there something that your heart desires? And let's just keep it at good things that you would desire, that you're really waiting for. No matter what the circumstances, we have hope. You do have hope, even in the waiting. You know what despair does? Despair looks at circumstances. You know what hope does? Hope looks to the character of God. And so when you are despairing, it's because I can guarantee it, friend. If you're despairing, it's because you're looking at your circumstances. But if you look at God's character, your heart will be filled with hope. And so where are you looking this morning? We do not have a hopeless end. What we have is endless hope. That's what we have. Number two, we can joyfully praise God for the hope in salvation in sorrow. So it's building here. The hope of salvation in sorrow. So verses 3 through 5 describe the hope of salvation. Verse 6, next paragraph, begins in this. So what? in this what? In, in this previous paragraph, verses 3 through five. So everything that's being taught in verses three through five on the hope of salvation, now in verse six, new paragraph in this, so based upon that previous paragraph, based upon the hope of salvation, now you rejoice, he says. In this, you rejoice. Verses six through nine is the next paragraph, and it builds on the previous one. So even in the middle of sorrow, we have hope and we have joy in Christ. So again, verse 6 says, we rejoice, we joyfully praise God, even though, he says, we are grieved by various trials. So he says, even when you're grieved, when you're grieving by trials, and he says various. So Peter here doesn't define the trials because they're all going to be different. What you're going through and someone else is going through is going to be unique. There's various kinds of struggles. 
So, but he says, when you're grieved by various trials, he says, you can rejoice. You can have joy and praise God. And he even says, if necessary. If necessary? Like, why is that in the Bible? Why, why would it be necessary for us to have to endure grief and sorrow? Why? Why would it be necessary? Verse 7. So that, here's why, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, listen, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are tested by fire, and it produces a more pure faith. So you know that disappointment or that uncertainty that right now you're, you're kind of struggling with, that you're experiencing right now? Maybe for you, it's a very real pain that you're going through right now. According to God's word, guess what? You need it. That difficulty that you wish would just disappear, you need it. It's good for you. God is taking that sorrow and he's using it to shape you for his glory, which is the ultimate good anyway, is that we display God's glory. And this text describes a sovereign, completely in control God who has not forgotten you who is using those to conform you to the image of his son. And when Christ returns, he's going to share, says, his praise, glory, and honor with you. Did you, did you catch that? He's going to share his praise, glory, and honor with you. You who are broken and needy, we who are so desperate for him, and he's going to praise and glorify and honor us. This is overwhelming how much God values us. And then verse 8, it continues, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what trials do. That's what challenges do. They help us to experience God's presence like never before. We tend to pray more when we have problems. If life is too comfortable, we would forget about Jesus. The reality is that we're all desperate for him. We need him. We are so desperate for him. But we can forget, as crazy as that is, we can become self-sufficient and autonomous and think that we've accomplished and we got this. And we don't got it. And trials remind us. This sorrow reminds us of just how desperate we really are for Jesus. And God is most concerned with your character, not your comfort. So if you want to be stronger, and we'll talk even here physically for a moment. Guys, if you want to get stronger, you want to have stronger, bigger muscles, guess what you need to do? Well, you can't sit on your couch and watch TV. That's not going to help you get stronger. You need resistance. Muscles get stronger when they have resistance. You're lifting weights or your own body. 
If you don't have resistance, you won't get stronger. And the same is true spiritually. We need resistance so that we can grow and be stronger and display his glory more. How do you respond when you don't get your way? Or when what you want just isn't working out? Does trusting in God result in, as we just read, with rejoicing, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? So, I mean, everyone can say, yes, I'm rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory when everything goes my way, when everything goes the way I want. When what I've conceived of what my life should look like when all that's working out, yes, I will praise God with rejoicing that's inexpressible, with joy and filled with glory. But what about when things aren't going your way? You know what hope? Hope means hoping when things seem hopeless. Hope really is hoping, trusting, believing, even when things look hopeless. Because think about it, as long as your situation looks really good, as long as things look really hopeful, claiming to hope in God is nothing more than a platitude. It's empty. Oh, I hope in God, really? No, you're hoping in your paycheck. But when you lose that paycheck, and you say, I'm hoping in God, now... That's true, and now it means something. So only when everything seems hopeless is that's when hope begins to actually be a strength. And so what are you hoping for? We're all hoping for something, but what are you hoping for? Fill in the blank. If only I had blank then my life would be great. So what do you look forward to the most and hope that you can experience? What occupies your mind and what controls your dreams? Is Christ your hope? Because when Christ is our hope, then he becomes that one thing that we always have confidence in. Are you trusting in God's promises? Are you relying on the presence of Jesus? So what hope gets you up on a Sunday morning? And what hope sustains you throughout your day? Is Jesus really the center of your life? Look at your free time. That's one indicator. Your thoughts. Is it the center of your life? Do you find yourself maybe just manipulating, controlling, threatening, or complaining all through life in order to get your way? How do we cope with disappointment and frustration? What do we turn to when things don't look good, when you're disappointed or hurting? Because when Jesus is our hope, we will pursue him and enjoy him. Jesus is better. 
And verse 9 here reminds us that our ultimate hope is in the person of Jesus. It's a person, especially in the middle of sorrow, because he alone can save us. And so he is a source of joy. Now, I already know, I know, some of you are thinking, I already know this. You're thinking, I just want this painful thing to go away. God, make this disappear. And God will speak to you and say, my child, I'm with you. I have something better than making that pain go away. You have my grace. You have my presence. That's so much better than having that pain go away. So is that what you want? Really? Some of you are thinking, God, keep your grace and fix the problem. I'd be much better if you give me a little bit less of your grace and just change him or her or it. Just fix it. Whenever we find ourselves thinking, God, I don't really want more of your grace or more of your presence. I just want you to fix the situation. That is a cry of someone who has no idea how much better Jesus is. The goal for each one of us is to have our affections for Jesus to grow so that he becomes what we want. We want more of his grace and more of his presence. So when that happens, we will live faithful lives of purity and of service to him. So disciples of Jesus, we can joyfully praise God in life because we have hope. The second one is we have hope of salvation in the sorrow. Why? Why does, why does that give us hope in the middle of sorrow? Why? Because we have the confidence that God is working all of our circumstances for his glory and for our good, that we really have a living hope. We know where we're going to end up. We can trust him today. Lastly, number three, we can joyfully praise God for the hope of fulfilled salvation. So we can praise and joyful because of the hope of fulfilled salvation. Verses 10 through 12, last paragraph, describes how the Old Testament prophets, inspired by the Spirit of God, predicted of Christ's coming. It says that they predicted the sufferings of Christ and of subsequent glories. So the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. It points to him as Messiah. So God's plan from the very beginning was to create a people, he would live with them, make them holy, so that they can then display his glory to the world, be a light to all nations. And so God called Abraham first to be the father of his people. And he promised Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through one of your descendants. Of course, those descendants rebelled against God's love. And so later he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And when they're in the wilderness, he gave them a tabernacle so that they could have his presence right there with them. And then later he gave them the temple, a more stable, a more proper, if you will, building still for God's presence to be there with his people. But they continued to rebel against God and his love. And so he sent them into exile, into Assyria, and then later Babylon, their enemies. And the message of the prophets is that of judgment for sin, but also of the hope for future restoration through Messiah. That is all 
pointing to Jesus, who is the Messiah, who has come to bring us into the better, final, ultimate promised land, heaven itself, where we will be new creations, where a resurrected king is ruling over a resurrected people on a resurrected earth. This is where all of history is moving. And so Jesus, he is the final and better temple. He is the final and better sacrifice. He's the one that leads us into God's presence. And so because Jesus fulfilled salvation, we can have joy and hope because we know that God is at work. He's making promises and he keeps them. There's hope. And you know what we are? We are the messengers of hope. There are people in this world who don't know that Jesus fulfilled salvation. They don't know that he was ultimate sacrifice. They don't know about hope and forgiveness. And so if there's one thing that we can offer this world, it's hope. Because we have it. And we can offer it to people. And so are we intentional to go to those in our world that are hopeless and offer them the hope of salvation in sorrow because Jesus fulfilled salvation. As disciples of Jesus, we can joyfully praise God in our life because we have hope. Jesus fulfilled it. And why does that give us so much hope? Seeing how this story all points to Christ, why does that bring us hope? Because God's a storyteller. He's telling a beautiful story. And guess who's a part of it? You. You are the, a part of the story that God is telling, the story of redemption through Jesus, and you are a part of it. Your life has immense eternal value, and you do have hope. So we continue to follow Jesus in this foreign land because we have a living hope. Yes, the sorrow is very real, and yet the living hope that we have is just as real. We're all hoping in something. What are you hoping in? If you're a believer in Jesus, you're hoping in him for your eternity. Surely you can hope in him for today. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our allegiance of our obedience. And today, together, we cast ourselves upon your mercy, hoping in you alone. I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't understand this hope. They have never repented. They have never trusted in you, and you're not their hope. I pray for that individual right now, that they would place their hope in you, that they would repent, turn away from their sins and trust in you alone and experience this inexpressible joy that we were reading about, Father, that we have because you are our hope. Thank you. Thank you for our salvation. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We thank you and we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus.